Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. Each mini-series in this podcast will explore a different aspect of the cultural, social, economic, or biographical history of women. If you'd like to see what I've got planned, ask a question, or make a suggestion, please visit my website at www.herhalfofhistory.com. This very first series is a bit of cultural history called What's in the Closet and How It Got There. This is episode 1.1, Who Wears the Pants Around Here? Or, if you prefer, Who Wears the Trousers Around Here? Being American, I'm going to call it pants, but I'm fully aware that to some of you, that may bring to mind images of a much more private article of clothing. If you were hoping to hear about underwear, never fear, and stay tuned for episode 1.4. Let's get started. In the beginning, women wore nothing. One of my archaeological sources says that the first attempt at clothes was plant matter, and it would be difficult to get any more vague than that. If you accept the Bible, you can translate it into fig leaves, but either way it sounds logistically difficult. Hardly worth the bother, really, so it's a relief to both warmth and modesty considerations when humanity figures out how to wear the hides of other animals. Animal rights activists weren't yet a thing, at least as far as we know. Tools for working hides have been found dating to hundreds of thousands of years ago. I have lots of notes about dates for linen, cotton, leather, and silk production, but the details get boring, quite honestly, and what's worse, my sources contradict each other. So let's just say that between 36,000 and 2000 BCE, the fashionable woman started to have some choices when she went down to the local fabric store. The point for today is that no one, man or woman, was wearing pants through these early stages, because there weren't any. A wraparound skirt or a gracefully draped cloak may be harder to wear, but they are much easier to sew. They quickly expand or shrink based on your current waistline, and they can even be repurposed as curtains, blankets, or whatever else you need. And in a world where cloth was unimaginably expensive, that is no trivial consideration. So all the macho men of this ancient world are doing all of their chest thumping in what basically amounts to a bathrobe, or maybe an A-line skirt, something along those lines. I can find no hard dates for the ancestors of today's pants, but they certainly existed by Greek times because the Greeks thought they were ridiculous, fit only for barbarians. Some of those so-called barbarians were the Scythians and other nations of Central Asia. These tribes spent their lives largely on horseback and had realized that for a rider, pants weren't ridiculous at all. But it wasn't a gendered thing. Their women spent their lives on horseback, too. Pants made sense for everyone. From Central Asia, the trend spread. Some Chinese, including women, picked it up, much to the dismay of the Chinese fashion police. Europeans were slower to catch on. But then again, most Europeans didn't spend much or any time on horseback, so the original reasons were not as compelling. Those who did spend a lot of time riding were mainly upper-class men, And they are indeed some of the earliest Europeans to wear pants, which automatically gave them a certain association with power and status. As a general rule, most European men and women wore various versions of long flowing robes until the Black Death came in the 1300s to shake things up. In the upheaval, European men of the middle and lower classes started to wear breeches, trousers, hose, or various other versions of a bifurcated garment. European women did not start wearing them, and this is where the gender distinction comes in. 
For some, the distinction in dress became quite important, even life-threatening. When Joan of Arc was under trial for heresy by the pro-English church, one of the most concerning charges against her was that she wore men's clothes, which is not allowed, according to the book of Deuteronomy in the Bible. Never mind that the original writer almost certainly did not have pants in mind when the verse was written. Pants were now defined as men's clothes, therefore they were a problem. Joan hints that she found men's clothes, with all its straps connecting tunic and hose, to be a protection against unwanted advances, certainly more so than a dress. But fear of sexual assault wasn't found to be a valid reason, and she burned at the stake in 1431. Others found Deuteronomy dismissible. Empress Elizabeth of Russia went so far as to force women to wear pants in one setting. Every Tuesday night, the entire court was required to come for a ball. Only the men had to dress as women, and the women had to dress as men. There was nothing Elizabeth loved better than a chance to show off her well-shaped legs in skin-tight pants, which just goes to show that as long as you are rich and powerful enough, you can wear whatever you want. There are some clues that wealthy European and American women wore some version of pants at health spas and for riding in the 18th and 19th centuries. But these were generally private events, often for women only, and the pants were remarked on precisely because it was a questionable choice. The first groups to experiment with women publicly bucking the fashion trends were the same groups who were bucking the trends in nearly everything else. The 19th century was overflowing with utopian societies, all of whom were trying to gather together under new rules to cure the various ills of society. In 1826, Robert Owen's Community of Equality in Indiana urged more rational clothes for its members, including baggy pants called pantaloons and a coat reaching to the knee for women. Interestingly, it wasn't based on imitating men's clothes. It reminded many of what children commonly wore. In 1848, John Humphrey Noyes urged the women in his upstate New York community to forego their vanity by cutting their hair and wearing plain, short dresses over a pair of pants. Some historians have suggested that the Seneca Native Americans who lived nearby were the inspiration for the style. In 1850, Strangeite Mormon women wore a similar costume. Note that the Strangeite Mormons were a splinter group from the larger Mormon church, officially known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The larger group did not adopt the same dress code. The National Dress Reform Association was formed by those interested in dress reform purely for health and practicality, but not as part of a grand vision to fix all the problems in the world. And for them, the actions of all these utopian societies were entirely unfortunate. The community of equality was accused of being a free love society. Noyes believed in what he called complex marriage, where all adult members were married to all other adult members. And the Strangeite Mormons practiced polygamy. In the public mind, the idea of pants for women became inextricably associated with sexual deviance. No self-respecting modest woman was going to wear something like that. Not ever. And that was the general mood when the infamous bloomers were invented. Wearing a bloomer costume meant wearing loose, voluminous pants which gathered at the ankle and a dress that hung over them. The pants were called Turkish trousers because they resembled what Turkish men wore. 
The dress varied in length, but it was at least to the knees and sometimes quite a bit longer. But crucially, it didn't reach the floor, which was good for cleanliness and mobility, but bad according to both the fashion and the modesty expectations of the day. Note that because of the Turkish trousers, no bare skin was ever visible. But still, you could tell that women were not actually shaped like a handbell. It turns out they had legs under all those skirts. Who knew? Amelia Jenks Bloomer did not invent the bloomers, and she was not the first to wear them, but she was the author of some well-publicized articles about them, and the press took to calling them after her. She was also one of three women's rights activists who, in 1851, brought them to everyone's attention by striding down the streets of Seneca Falls, New York, in broad daylight. It was the first time the women's rights movement had been directly involved in promoting them. Women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucy Stone, and the Grimke sisters all wore bloomers as they lectured, wrote, and traveled to promote women's rights. Susan B. Anthony was a very reluctant convert. Stanton spent six months persuading her before she finally relented, and she never grew to like it. Donning the bloomers was a decision these women would soon come to regret. The hostile reaction was much more severe than they expected. Women in bloomers were laughed at, mocked, surrounded, and even occasionally needed police or a male friend to rescue them from hecklers. Nevertheless, they persisted, because a retreat would have been humiliating. Anthony hated it. Stanton declared, Had I counted the cost of the short dress, I would never have put it on. Now, however, I'll never take it off, for now it involves a principle of freedom. But she did take it off. By 1854, she was back in long skirts and encouraging her fellow feminists to do the same. The truth was that dress reform was so outrageous that it drew all the attention away from what to her were the real issues, namely political rights, the vote. Dress reform was just a side issue. Amelia Bloomer was the most stubborn. She continued on bravely for several more years, but in 1858, even she put her namesakes away. For the future of women's pants, the association with women's rights was just as unfortunate as the association with visions of utopia. Most respectable women did not want to be branded as a proponent of women's suffrage any more than as a proponent of free love. Even for those women who accepted the impracticality of long skirts and the obvious advantages of mobility, there were quite a few good reasons for not wearing the new costume. Some were understandably not up for the social ostracization. Many thought they were ugly. There was also the question of expense. If you live on a limited budget, you'll probably spend your limited clothes allowance on a nice new dress you can be proud of. You'll wear your older dresses for housework and exercise, which are precisely the activities where the bloomer costume would have been most useful. Besides the social considerations, there was at least one situation in which long skirts really were more practical. Some frontier women frequently found themselves in places with many men and absolutely no facilities. Reportedly, women would use their long skirts to shield each other from view when they needed to relieve themselves. Pants and a short skirt simply wouldn't work for that purpose. The reality was very few women actually wanted to wear bloomers and they faded into obscurity. Aside from a few oddball women bucking the trends and paying a stiff penalty for it, nothing changed 
until the 1890s when the bicycle came into vogue. Long skirts were obviously impractical for that. Most utopian societies had long since failed to save the entire world, and the memory of them had receded a bit, which certainly helped. Over the next few decades, women were also getting more into tennis, golf, mountaineering, and other sports. Various fashion solutions were tried, including some pants. But aside from sportswear and an occasional costume for a fancy dress party, it still wasn't socially acceptable for women to wear pants. Even in sports, it wasn't always easy. Fashion designer Elizabeth Hawes wrote that in 1930, she went on a bicycle trip around southern France wearing a pair of French workmen's blue jeans. She wrote, Almost the entire population who saw me made some amusing comment about the first female they'd ever seen in outer pants. She later married the man she was cycling with, but it was a short-lived marriage, and she writes that, There were a lot of reasons, but I'd say that no female who likes to wear trousers should ever marry a male who is really against it. Hawes didn't give up, though. When she married for the second time, she wore blue jeans to the wedding. Incidentally, Hawes wasn't just in favor of women wearing pants. She also promoted skirts for men. In 1942, Rosie the Riveter appeared wearing blue overalls. Droves of women were taking over factory jobs while the men were away, and they had to dress the part. This had happened in World War I, too, but not to the same extent, and not for as long, and most had returned to skirts as soon as the war was over. But after World War II, no one was ever going to be able to say they'd never seen a woman in pants. As the first pants designed for women came out, they did have one significant difference from many of the pants you likely have in the closet. Yours probably have a zipper on the front, which is utterly shocking. What if it falls down? The zipper definitely had to be on the side. Some women bought men's trousers for themselves, but went to the trouble of picking out the zipper and sewing it back in on the side. So now pants were okay for sports and okay for factory work, but that's not all there is to life. What about what women wore when they just wanted to look good? Hollywood's actresses are often frontrunners for fashion, both in and outside of the United States, and they did their part here. Marlene Dietrich had worn pants back in the 30s, but it was dismissed as a publicity stunt and an ugly one at that. Catherine Hepburn wore pants in the 30s, too, but it was part of an androgynous look and not considered exactly beautiful. She was already criticized for being too masculine and too rough. By the time Grace Kelly and Audrey Hepburn wore pants in the 60s, it looked glamorously feminine. The work of such cultural icons helped the look. A quick glance at the fashion plates of every single year from 1784 will reveal that the fashionable woman isn't wearing pants until 1970. Fashion plates as history are sometimes criticized because we all know that what the models are wearing on the runway this year often bears no resemblance to what the ordinary woman is wearing day to day. When Mary Tyler Moore joined the Dick Van Dyke show, she played the role of the housewife, and she insisted on wearing jeans and capris. As she later said in an interview, I've seen all the other actresses, and they're always running the vacuum in these little flowered frocks with high heels on, and I don't do that. And I don't know any of my friends who do that, so why don't we try to make this real, and I'll dress on the show the way I do in real life. The sponsors were reluctant and very concerned about how much the pants might cup under her rear end, but she got her way 
making wearing pants a normal and attractive thing for an ordinary American woman living an ordinary American life. In the 60s, the ordinary woman was not yet sitting in the boardroom of a major company, so what about office clothes? The first pantsuit appeared in the 1967 collection of Yves Saint Laurent. It was done in men's fabrics, and the model wore a tie and felt hat with it. She also wore high heels. Pantsuits really took off in the 1980s as women joined offices in larger numbers. But even as it entered the mainstream, pockets of resistance lingered. In 1993, Carol Mosley Braun, the first African-American woman ever to serve in the U.S. Senate, showed up for her first day on the job in a pantsuit. She'd worn pantsuits to the Illinois Senate for years and had no idea that women in pants were frowned on in the U.S. Senate. She heard gasps as she walked out, but she didn't even realize she had begun a revolution until female staffers started coming up to thank her. They had been petitioning for the right to wear pants on the Senate floor since at least 1972, but they'd been held to the mercy of whatever the doorkeeper of the day deemed appropriate, and pants were never appropriate. Around the same time, Senator Barbara Mikulski also began wearing pantsuits, deliberately, in her case, and after a check that there wasn't an official rule on the books against it. Between the two of them, Mosley Braun and Mikulski led what became known as the Pantsuit Rebellion. It was also in 1993 that Hillary Clinton became First Lady, and she was the first First Lady in history to wear pants in her official portrait. So, women are now wearing pants at work, and for sports, and at home, and a night on the town. Amelia Jenks Bloomer would be proud. Or maybe she wouldn't, since today's pants look nothing like the bloomers she championed. But that's not to say the gender distinctions have been erased. A woman dressing up for a special event today is very often still not reaching for the pants in her closet. If you go to a bridal shop, you're going to see an array of dresses, not pantsuits. And there are still places and cultures around the world where women can't wear pants under any circumstances. On the other hand, in this day and age, there are far more places where women can appropriately wear pants than there are places where men can appropriately wear skirts. Curiously, I don't hear a loud clamor of men begging for equality on this issue. I'll leave you to ponder why not. That's it for today. One of many sources for this episode was Gail V. Fisher's Pantaloons and Power. You can find a link at my website, www.herhalfofhistory.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider liking, subscribing, leaving a review, or recommending it to your friends. These things really do make a difference to a brand new podcast. And I hope you'll tune in next week for episode 1.2, The Rise and Fall of Your Hemline. Thanks! Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention 
it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it, because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.